So the name of today's episode is Here Comes Rona. And it was important for us to create this episode so that the often unsung work of graduate students would not be forgotten during the pandemic. At our university, we had heard stories of students unable to get into their labs, unable to hold their performances, and the overwhelming concerns about delays to degrees and unknowns related to finances and visas. Um, when we spoke with our guests, however, a very different set of stories and sentiments emerged. We were surprised to find stories of resilience and stick to itiveness, a word that I learned from Annie, that left us in awe of the important work that is continuing to happen by graduate students in clinics, performance communities, labs, and even on ships in the Arctic. Hello, listeners. I'm Annie. And I'm Q. Welcoming you to another episode of Grad Gamut a podcast that delves into the lesser-known dimensions of graduate student life. We will be bringing masters and PhD students from all different backgrounds to share what it is really like to commit to several years of graduate education to pursue a dream. We will celebrate the highs, share the challenges, and come together as a graduate student community. Most importantly, we will amplify real graduate student stories to inform advocacy and policymaking. My name is Christina Gaithel, and I'm a PhD candidate at the Chesapeake Biological Lab, which is part of the University of Maryland Center for Environmental Science. And to look I'm at how the pandemic has impacted grad student research, we had a very interesting conversation with Christina Gaithel. So actually, when I was in high school, I had the chance to go to the Eastern Arctic, so Iceland, Greenland, and Canada. Um, with a student group in Canada called Students on Ice. And I fell in love with it. And the following year, I went actually down to Antarctica with the same group. Kind of knew I wanted to study polar regions. Um, I just got really excited when I was there. And it kind of was this thing since I was 15 and just got really, really excited about it um, and was lucky enough to interact with someone during my undergraduate degree that, that knew someone in this field. Working with him on a project, I stayed excited. And so that's kind of what drew me to graduate school because I wanted to keep learning about it and, and develop a career in it. So Annie, what do you think is important about Christina's work? You know, before, before you had a talk with Christina Q and you had that initial conversation, I had worked with Christina for about two years on advocacy stuff across the state of Maryland, even though we go to different universities. I had no idea how cool her research was. So I used to know just the briefest little bit she would bring up that she's, in general, she's a STEM student. She studies science. And once or twice, she may have mentioned clams, invertebrates. <laughs> but I had no idea what that meant, right? I, I couldn't attach any meaning. I was just like, well, that's cool. You science person, you uh, keep, keep doing what you do and do so well. But when you had your conversation, it really illuminated for me how her research speaks to the entire movement and phenomena of climate change mm -hmm. and how her work is helping not just science and scholarship and the ivory tower, so to speak, she's helping the communities 
in and around the area that she studies in the Arctic. And I thought that that was impressive and it added just a whole new level of meaning that I think is important for everyone to know about graduate student research in general. So what does Christina do? And I look at changing populations of invertebrates like clams in the Arctic and how they've been changing over the last 25 to 30 years as environmental conditions have changed. So declining sea ice, warming water temperatures, warming air temperatures, uh, availability to food, stuff like that. So is that been shifting, especially in the more recent years, very drastically, looking at how that's affecting the animals that live on the bottom of the ocean, which are oftentimes food food sources for animals like walrus and diving seabirds, which are then in turn important to local communities in Alaska. Christina's research as a graduate student is fundamental to our understanding of climate change. The Arctic is one of the most rapidly changing regions in the world. Mm. Um, And a lot of times to people, it seems really far away and like it doesn't affect us, but it's actually a really good place because it changes so quickly and it changes sooner than a lot of other places. It can act as a a place of understanding to look at other systems and see how they might change in the future. Her research is on the ecosystem of the Arctic, how small animals are food to larger animals, which are food to human communities around the Arctic. Exactly. And what Christina does a really good job of, of when she describes her research, I think is showing just how interconnected everything is and how you have to study all the different parts. So clams might not seem like much, they might seem like this really tiny piece of the puzzle, but when you think of clams as a food source for this whole other level of animals in the food chain, it automatically makes it more important. It has more gravity, if you will. And then you start to begin to understand why it requires all these scientists studying in various specializations to fully grasp and track and understand climate change and the effects it's having in different areas of the world. In this case, for Christina, the Arctic. Yeah. And um, something that I didn't know is that how many different Arctic communities are there? I had no idea. In the future. Additionally, there are a ton of communities in the Arctic, the Russian Arctic, you know, Norway, Sweden. Denmark, Greenland, um, all these communities, uh, Alaska, so in the United States as well, there are are native communities. Understanding how this ecosystem that provides resources to large animals as well as these native communities um, and how they're going to change is really important important because it's it's an active food source for these people they and they do so many things with these animals so they use the hides they use the skins they use the tusks they use i was up in barrow alaska which is now called ukdiavik one year after disembarking a cruise and there's an art workshop there at the cultural center and I walked behind to go look at what some of the local artists were doing and they were boiling a polar bear head on a camp stove to get the skull for for art I've never seen anything like that before but it was real cool thinking of you know different pieces of existence like different animals and their connection to humans it's so important then to to hear what she's saying about you know every year that the temperature is changing and and especially in this um past years that it has been aggressively changing, how then that affects everything that affects, of course, the polar bears, it affects the, like, if it affects actual human communities, right? Mm-hmm. And so in that area, the water temperature is usually negative two. 2018, it was positive two, which is something mm-hmm. my advisor has never, it's the warmest water she's ever seen there. And because of that rapid change of temperature and the rapid change of the climate, 
Christina's work and the work of the team that she's part of is not just an isolated research in a university far away, but it is very crucial to the Arctic communities themselves. That local community also does rely on these fishing, like we have surveys that go out looking at fish populations and crab populations. And, you know, so those those native communities do rely on this back and forth sharing information of the more formal science community and the native community and all of their local knowledge that they have. And they've asked questions of like, well, these surveys are essential to our like livelihood. You know, they give us information that we don't have and when combined with our own information helps make this really great picture. Here, I do want to pause for a second because even myself as a graduate student, admittedly in arts and humanities, had this kind of stereotypical idea of science grad students, which I thought their work is very isolated. They work on these niche specific scientific stuff that we probably won't see their application in the next decades to come. But then seeing this, seeing Christina's work, her work seems very immediate to me. First, it's very hands-on because every single year she travels to the Arctic to gather samples and information and connect with the local community. And second, because it shows us the most important information about climate change and perhaps one of the most important information that the community needs right now because they need to know what is the condition with their food source this year. Everybody's got to eat. Everybody's got eight, exactly. <laughs> so then the question becomes how Christina can maintain her work in such a crazy year. How she can go to a place that it is very hard to get to even in a normal year, let alone in a year that there is a pandemic, there, is, there are so many different travel restrictions and so many different obstacles to remove. So first, let's start to say that what would be lost if this trip doesn't happen? It would be really unfortunate. There's a lot of groups, but particularly my advisors group that have really great time series in the Arctic. Mm. And it's a place where time series don't, there's not a ton of them there. And the ones that do exist, they're short. In my dissertation, I'm working with data where I have data every single year from 1998 to 2019. <laughs> and I think for a lot of people, that's crazy and hard to come by. And, and in the Arctic, it's even less so because it's a, it's a relatively new place of exploration, quote unquote, new area for it would be sad to not to not to have that gap, especially in a time where changes have been so incredibly drastic. In the late 90s, and this is just a guess, I would say the gap in in a year might not have been as um, crucial, but where things have just changed so quickly, I think any kind of gap in data would, would be really unfortunate for an area that, I mean, we've had calls too. I've sat on multiple calls about um, kind of the dichotomy of like, okay, native villages and, and local villages need to change, uh, close because of 
you know, minimal medical services or like Nome, for instance, you can't drive to Nome. You can either fly or you can dog sled when there's snow, but there's no road to Nome. And so in a normal year... Usually we go up to Dutch Harbor in early July. We get on the ship for two and a half weeks. We run about 50 stations. So at each station, we're taking a suite of measurements, looking at water chemistry, chlorophyll content, so little little plant life material living in the system. We take benthic grabs, so grabs of mud from the bottom and look at the animals, which is what where my stuff comes in. We look at sediment content, carbon content. We look at grain size of the sediment. We look at nutrients in the water. It's this whole suite of measurements. It's a 24-hour clock where if we're on station, we're awake and working and you learn how to nap at weird hours in weird places. So usually we have that cruise every year and it ends at the end of July. But this year, the plans have constantly changed. This year, we were supposed to have a joint cruise on a NOAA vessel, a Fairweather, which is the one that is still maybe going, although we're on a different ship. So a normal field year would have us up there for one or two cruises where we live on the ship and we take these suite of measurements and work with a variety of groups from other institutions across, across the globe, really. The changes in the travel restrictions has added to the problems. It did change for us a bit. The Canadian cruise was completely canceled. That had a lot to do with both the timing of it in July and people not knowing, you know, it was a little earlier in the season. And so people, there was less news or ways to deal with this and, and still climbing cases at that time. Additionally, Canada closed its borders, so we couldn't actually enter Canada. If they were going to go, they weren't going to stop because a lot of Alaskan ports were closed as well, especially the small communities where we usually board the ship because they don't have the medical resources if there was a major outbreak. So they, they shut their doors pretty hard. There was no way for us to get on the ship because we couldn't go into Canada and we couldn't get on in a small Alaskan community like we usually do. At the time that I was talking to Christina, um, they had a plan, they, they fixed the plan, but the dates were changing. It has been a lot of back and forth. We were supposed to have a yes, we are absolutely going or no, we are absolutely not going by June 22nd. June 22nd came and went and then we got a new set of dates and our original cruise was supposed to go out in August. We were supposed to go from August 5th to August 27th. We are now going August 24th to September 27th, and we are leaving out of Seattle. We still won't be flying to Alaska. Here's a plan. We have to shelter in place in Seattle, so there's a lot of rules to get us there. We, to Seattle for an eight-day shelter in place. Day four, we get called where to go to get tested. Day five, we get tested. If any of us come back positive, none of us will go. We have to wear a mask on the ship even after establishing the bubble so we will be in masks and limiting interactions and common spaces and you know working on deck we have to balance other safety precautions right how do you work on deck and still be able to hear each other with loud noises and the ship going on and i imagine it'll be 24-hour operations which means we'll also be working in the dark even so it'll get darker sooner even now we're still not guaranteed to go so alaska actually just put in more restrictions as a state my advisor said this is the most work she's ever put into a field season ever. If we can get out there, it'll be really valuable data because 2020 is, it looks kind of like 2018 and 2019 where the conditions are, are changing rapidly.
did Christina and her team make it to the Arctic? Coming up next. Maybe just starting with where you left off and saying what happened. Yeah. Yeah. So a month and a half after our initial conversation with Christina, Annie and I called her to see how did the plan go. So we had our shelter in place plan. We had, you know, our calls with Noah. We had everything kind of set. We flew to Seattle. We got to our shelter in place house. We all hunkered down. There were seven of us. Um, we were allowed to do outdoor activities. Um, we got tested on the third day. We got told where we were going to get tested. And on the fourth day, we got tested um, with the plan of results coming back in two to three days. Um, results did come back and one person uh, did end up testing positive. So one person tests positive in Seattle. Everybody else in their bubble tests negative. And this seems very odd to them because when seven people share a house, a common space, and eat together, do activities together, the odds of only one person testing positive and all other negative is very low, especially considering that now we know COVID is an airborne disease. Um, so unfortunately though, that kind of left all of us potentially exposed and so we weren't allowed to board the ship. Um, there were some discussions about maybe contingency plans and could the rest of us fly up Kodiak, Alaska and get on there. Um, but we were told that the person who did test positive would not be allowed on at all. And unfortunately, that meant other people who were contingent on that person joining also could not go. So we're so self-reliant on each other and working together and the equipment we deploy and the samples that we collect. But at the end of the day, if one of us got taken out, it was going to be kind of a headache regardless. Um, so that actually left two people automatically out. Um, and then we got told the rest of us, like, they weren't going to stop in Kodiak. They were changing plans. They, you know, there was not going to be an addition. Um, so when we found that out, my advisor actually, I think, relaxed for the first time in two weeks. <laughs> um, and the next morning we woke up and all went to get retested in the city of Seattle just to make sure so that we could fly home. Now their plans are basically canceled. They are not being let to go on the ship because of the one positive test of one of their colleagues. They can't change their plans and leave one person behind because of how their work are interconnected. And they did not anticipate a scenario that's only one person would test positive. So now the only way is to cancel the whole trip and go back. Christina and the team do not give up. They started planning for the third time, this time to go to the Arctic in October. If successful, this would be the first time ever their scientific team done this trip in the fall. Would the October attempt be the third time charm? Coming up next.
time the plan is to travel directly to Alaska, then to shelter in place in separate hotel rooms instead of being in one bubble, then get a private charter flight to where the ship is, how cool is that, and board the ship. So we talked to Christina about how this plan went. So the state of Alaska actually had restrictions in place where we had to have proof of a negative test result three days before entering the state or within entering the state. And so we all got tested before flying. So four of us from Maryland and the one woman from Massachusetts all got tested before flying and had negative test results upon arriving to Alaska. This time they had fewer people in the plan. We then quarantined in individual hotel rooms for one week in Alaska. They got tested on the day four and it all came negative. And then uh, boarded a clean charter flight with just us to fly from Anchorage to Nome. They take the cool charter flight and then they are picked up by one person to go directly to the ship. So because of the lesson learned, this time the testing went a lot smoother. They did testing two times and they made it to the ship. This success means a lot of important data for science. We don't usually sample at that time in this region. My work specifically looking at the sediment oxygen rates, some of the preliminary results show just how important food is in the system. And it was a lot warmer than we expected to find it this year. And so with the past years in 2018 and 2019 being so kind of extreme and different, it was really great for us to get out in 2020. There's an article from The Guardian that my one of my committee members, Lee Cooper, cited it saying we packed our long underwear, and we, but we didn't use it. So it was much warmer than we thought it was going to be. But we also saw proof of uh, production in the water, so chlorophyll, that we might not have expected to see. And so it looked like we were capturing kind of this newer, newer fall bloom phenomenon in the region. Going in October showed the scientists that now Arctic is a lot warmer in fall than they expected. They also captured a new fall gloom. And now there won't be any gap here in the data. So the work will definitely help our time series. I mean, just getting out and having 2020 not be a gap year from any data. I mean, it is a seasonal difference. And so, you know, in looking at an annual time series that will have to be taken into consideration in a way that the data is used because we didn't sample in July and August, which is usually when our group is going out. But it is really great to not have a gap in the year, especially 2020, which is now the second lowest sea ice extent behind 2012. And so 2018 and 2019 both kind of took that role as well. And now 2020, we had yet another one. So now 2020 is officially number two behind 2012 as the lowest ice extent. That's true. Now we officially know that 2020 has the second lowest ice extent in the Arctic. This is a sad but valuable information about climate change. 
It is also valuable information for the local communities. I said earlier that we collected some samples for harmful algal blooms. This is actually a really big concern in the region as it's they're seeing cysts of this algae that causes this in the sediment, but also in the clams, which are a food base for things like walrus, bearded seals, and diving sea ducks. And so, you know, that's a food security issue. And additionally, you know, having this record in 2020 as things change, there's a, you know, a mismatch potentially. So one of the big things in the region is that the benthic community, the, the seafloor community might be shifting and so and switching to more pelagic community. And so if that really does start to change, there's there's a food security issue for the local communities in the region. And even just having the the knowledge and this information from our groups to match and and complement the information that the, the native community knows so well and looks at every year because it's it's their home. Finally with this trip being done and valuable information gathered, we asked Christina what are her main takeaways of doing her graduate student research in the time of COVID-19 pandemic. My main takeaways, oh goodness, I mean it was definitely, you know, really a big time commitment. I spent most of my summer starting in August to the end of October either quarantining or trying to get on a boat, or traveling, or quarantining. It was definitely a lot of quarantining, but I think at the end of the day, it was definitely worth it. Anything that we can try and do to, to you know, make sure there aren't those gaps in the data set, because it's such a long-term and ongoing time series. Uh, you know, we already have plans for next year, but those include quarantine plans and COVID plans, and we're all kind of hoping we can start working internationally together again by the summer. But it was, it was worth it, and for me, like, field season is my favorite time of year. I love working with people. I love being out on the water. And so all of it was worth it for me. And I, I felt safe. I mean, precautions were taken and we worked under the limitations that we had. And while it was a lot of hard work and long work because of less people, and there were a lot more moving pieces and logistics with all the tests, I think at the end of the day, it was all really worth it. And we're all really happy. I, I would do it again in a heartbeat. Last stop on this episode. It is not only Christina who has this positive approach, but in every single interview that we did across the academic disciplines, graduate students were mentioning notions of silver lining in these dark, cloudy times of the pandemic. We thought it would be great to share a couple of moments in those interviews with you, just to give you an idea. Um, the, the conversations that you had with different people. And I also had the same kind of conversations in the interviews that I did. What, what was your take of people dealing with um, COVID when they're doing their research? I was surprised. 
So I think something that surprised us both is we kind of made a plan for the podcast and what we wanted to do. And we were starting this podcast around the same time as the pandemic hit. And we said, well, we need to do some coverage of the pandemic and how that's impacting graduate students. And I, for one, was really surprised that when we went out to say, you know, how did this disrupt your research? How did, how has this, you know, negatively impacted you and how can we better support those elements did exist, but students were pretty much figuring out creatively on their own how to make things work for them. And they had very positive attitudes and they were identifying, like, as we kind of saw this common theme, they were kind of identifying these silver linings. So a silver lining might be when it comes to Christina, the silver lining is everything had to change. It was incredibly cumbersome but they eventually make it and they have data that they've never had before because they would not have thought to have gone in October before. So they have this new kind of data that has its own neat aspects that's going to actually have an enhanced value for them as scientists. So like that's an example of, mm. of a silver lining. When speaking with Evan. My name is Evan Gutter. I'm a Master's of Public Health student at Emory. He he actually works in a clinic helping with the vaccine process for COVID. I'm actually working with a clinic that's associated with Emory Hospital. Actually, one of the sites that's working on one of the vaccine trials. But he's a public health graduate student. We were always joking about how we're going to end up in a ton of debt and then uh, have trouble finding jobs afterwards. We were you know talking about that even before the pandemic. And then once the pandemic hit, I feel like been a bit of a bit of a thought that, you know, public health might be taken more seriously and, you know, that might actually improve the, the job market for us. And he did his own qualitative study for school related to the mental health of graduate students at this time. I was taking a qualitative research class about halfway through the class. I ended up having to switch my topic because the one that I was going to do wasn't really tenable anymore when we move to all online. So I switched to how people are like how it's affecting people's mental health. And there was actually quite a bit of range in what I found. The people I talked to, I mean, there were some people that were having some difficulties coping with not seeing people in person as often and just, you know, generally having to be alone a lot more. But there are some people that have thrived. And what he found, again, was really interesting. It kind of scaled up our, our teeny tiny sample. It scaled up to a slightly bigger, still small sample when he did his qualitative study. And he found similarly, like there were not only cons, there were also some pros. So some students for the first time were able to have a little bit more time um, because they had more flexible hours for their assistantships, more flexible hours in which to do things. They no longer had to commute. Certain costs had been trimmed down for them. That's not to say this, that the cons don't exist. I think what the surprise comes into play is just everyone's overall resilience, their positive outlooks, and how they were finding those good pieces. And they were finding ways to mitigate the bad with the good and how they were finding ways to help themselves and help each other through this difficult time. Well, this whole thing has given people a chance to sort of slow down, which for some people has been great. And that further played out in the discussion with Drew. 
My name is Drew Hobbs. I am a first-year PhD student at the Chesapeake Biological Lab in the University of Maryland Center for Environmental Science. I transitioned right from the master's to a PhD. So Drew uh, is at the same school as Christina. I've been interested in science since like as long as I can remember. I remember being in seventh grade and wanted to be an entomologist and studying insects. He studies much more locally. He studies the Chesapeake water systems. So what we were originally doing, we were going out three times a year. We were going out in early May, uh, in late July, and then in late September. And the purpose of that was to try to capture different levels of oxygen. Um, we wanted to go in May because there presumably would not be hypoxia or uh, small, like low levels of oxygen. And then in July, when it's hot, there should probably be no oxygen. And then in September, there might be oxygen, but there might not be. And he too, just like Christina, what's funny is even though his is closer by, his research was more limited because the teens have to be really closely together. They can't socially distance. We usually have like 10 to 15 people on there. And a lot of what we do requires you to be right up next to somebody. Grabbing a sediment core, running sediment incubations, doing fish trawls where you have to like quickly analyze or analyze, measure and write down what the fish are. Um, it's just not possible. Like you, you can't do it with uh, social distancing. And, and we came up with a plan to kind of get the bare minimum of what we needed for the Patuxent stuff, but also for what I'm starting to think about with my own research. And even then, it was kind of like, is it even worth it? You know, we could potentially do it, but you got to think budgets, you got to think funding. You say, you know, if we, if we burn through this money now, what happens later? There were, I mean, there are so many moving pieces as, as yeah, I mean, everybody seems to be going through this. It's, this is nothing new. So they just had to cancel their field research, even though it was close by. But again, they're finding ways to use their time productively to look through old data in ways that they haven't done before. They always kind of set it aside and now they can really look at it. And in a sense, it's kind of a blessing in disguise for me because it gives me time to really dig into the literature, to really read up on stuff so that I know what I'm doing when I finally can do it. Um, with me starting in the spring and having finished my master's in the fall, I had some like things that I needed to wrap up. I'm like, I'm actually still working on them a little bit um, with the master's. So in a sense, it, it, it gives me time to not just go right into it and to make sure that I know what I'm doing. So I haven't been able to do field work, but we have a bunch of archived samples that we've never run. Like there's, there's a lot of data. Um, so there's a lot of things that I could get into and I have no idea what I'm gonna get into yet. We're still working on that because there's so, so many different directions I could take. But Drew really spoke a lot to the community of graduate students. Uh, their school is all graduate school students at the Environmental Center and how they're keeping each other sane during this time, as he would put it, like how they're looking out for each other and how the mental health toll is very, very real. But having a close-knit graduate student community like the one they have in their particular setting has, has just done so much for them, sticking together and helping at this time. As much bad news as there seems to be, there's also so much good news. And having been in a house with three other people for four months has shown me that people really do care about each other. I think when it comes down to it, and it's easy to, I don't know, for me, it's easy to kind of lose faith in humanity when you see all these sort of posts. But 
but the community with UMSEs and with College Park and with everybody has been really wonderful since I got here. I wouldn't have committed to a PhD if I didn't, if I didn't think that. The people, it's the people, that's the thing. It, the science is a product of the people, but the people are the reason why it happens. And that's been so awesome. So I guess thank you to, to everybody for all of that. And we'll get through it. If this is the hardest thing we do, we'll be all right. <laughs> I don't know. Just keep pushing, keep researching, keep learning, keep caring. That's one thing that I've been taught even more uh, during the pandemic. that as a graduate student in performing arts, I did not share that kind of hopefulness because our job by definition is relied on big gatherings of people. But then I did an interview with Beryl Liu, who's studying film and theater at NYU, and she really changed my mind. My name is Beryl. I am a Chinese Canadian student at New York University. My focus is in film and theater. I graduated from McGill University last year in drama and theater and political science. In terms of my thesis, I just changed it again, but so far focusing on the actor-character relationship. Beryl shared the same concerns with me. Certainly, I think one of the biggest things is for myself particularly is being a student in the arts and theater. And of course, I, I know you feel this too in theater and film, that part of our work is to be amongst others and to create and to do what we want to do. But with COVID and the whole situation of being social distancing, it is hindering a lot of what originally were our plans. And a lot of projects that were supposed to happen that semester, either senior films that were involved in, a play that we were rehearsing, we a lot of them were either postponed and unfortunately canceled because we had to go remote. And that was just a reality of it because we knew that this is something we had to do for the safety of everyone. My thesis project includes a film and so that's postponed as well. But also she mentioned that the new technology is giving us so many possibilities in resources and also it can help us to connect globally in the ways we couldn't before. When this started, I connected to so many people that usually I don't have the time to unfortunately do and, and, and to speak to a lot of friends that are globally. And I think one of the biggest things is that, you know, we are facing such an unprecedented situation that I never thought that this would happen. But I'm so grateful. I know a lot of my friends are very much grateful that we are in this generation and we have this technology and this power to connect to anywhere we want with Zoom and with any other social platform. And to her, these new possibilities were the way forward for film and theater and to create new innovative formats for performing arts. There's also this sort of silver lining towards it is that this whole new norm that we're facing it's demanding us to go a little bit out of the box and, and, and finding ways to 
to be malleable and, and be unconventional with what, what we're dealing with. And I think either, you know, academically or in the industry, it's for us to find ways to, to make things happen despite what we're in. And I think we're seeing possibilities and more things stem out as we find new ways to, to make that work. And there's an eagerness for stories and then there's an eagerness for creativity because we're all dealing with something that's very difficult and a lot of us a personal level. Um, I think just there's so much possibilities and I genuinely myself want to see the silver lining and the positivity out of it is that this is a great time to create and a great time to develop. Yeah. And I didn't, I didn't talk to Beryl, you did, but what, when I listened through your all's conversation, another thing that stuck with me is she said, the changes being made now, some of them she hopes stay, like stay with us post COVID because some of them have to do with making things more accessible for folks who have uh, differences of ability. I very much cherish the authenticity of theater being in person, you know, that sacredness of it, and also film, the powerness, the powerfulness of cinema, being in the cinema and experiencing a visual story. I very much love that and, and I hope and I believe that it's gonna come back. It just takes time. The reality is things and, and things are going to change to some way or another because of this new norm. I think we will still, we will definitely come back, but I think it is also interesting and it's also a good opportunity for us to be open to adapting to new ways of creating and making things more accessible. So I'm open to, to seeing what possibilities there are and the industry, I think because of this change will open doors to more opportunities. these notes of silver lining, we are going to end this episode, hoping that we go back to normal researching and creating soon, and this would be a better normal than before, for all graduate students. Look for the silver lining, whenever a cloud appears in the blue, remember somewhere the sun is shining. And so the right thing to do is make it shine for you A heart full of joy and gladness Will always banish sadness and strife So always look for the silver lining And try to find the sunny side of life Until next time, we would like to thank all of the graduate students and friends who helped make Grad Gamut possible. Our audio master, Stephen Hennessy, a recent graduate student from Bowling Green State University in Ohio, Hossein Haeri, our sound designer and current graduate student at UMass. Thank you as well to the Virginia Audio Collective through the University of Virginia and to everyone at Student Advocates for Graduate Education, SAGE, and the National Association of Graduate and Professional Students, NAGPS, for helping us connect with amazing graduate students to share their stories. Please listen to more graduate student stories on Grad Gamut. 
like and subscribe to the podcast on Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, or Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook at GradGamut. And if you're a graduate student with a story to share, contact us via our website gradgamut.com. Our website is also where you can learn more about the graduate students featured in all the episodes. Sunny side of life.